are rapidly coming to the conclusion of Paul's letter to Timothy, this first letter. And uh, it's been an enjoyable study. And it is not yet complete, but we are drawing to the end. We're in the final chapter. And we've really turned a corner with the end of verse 2. We will turn a corner with the last phrase of verse 2 into the final section. Really, logically, as Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, the final um, section of this address to Timothy. Beginning in verse 3, all the way through the end of the chapter and the end of the letter, Paul will be dealing with um, several key components that he wants to address Timothy regarding, and they all will connect together. He will not start a new topic after tonight when he begins in verse 3 discussing false teachers. He will bridge that from looking at false teachers to then looking in contrast to Timothy one final time as the man of God. Um, just a, a wonderful passage to commit to memory. He calls Timothy man of God. What a title that is in verse 11. And it carries that all the way through verse 16 challenging Timothy with his responsibility in regards particularly to wealth. And I miss verses 6 through 10. We're going to only look at 3 to 5. Your note sheet says 3 to 10. That's called ambition and uh, faulty ambition at that. And my wife is the one who types that, so she asked me this week, what are we going to cover? And I boldly said, verses 3 through 10, it, we are going to deal with 3 through 5. And then 6 through 10 next week, 6 through 10 dealing with the poor within the church, then the man of God in verses 11 to 17, then 17 to 21 or 17 to 19 dealing with the rich, those who are wealthy within the church at Ephesus and their responsibility and Timothy's responsibility to call these different groups of people into account. And then it will conclude with his final blessing to Timothy and the letter will be done. But tonight, in verses 3 through 5, we turn the corner and he again brings Timothy back to the all-important subject of the doctrine of the church. You'll remember, back in chapter 3, at the very end of the chapter, beginning in verse 14, he outlined for Timothy the purpose for his letter and he titled the church. The church, in verse 15, is titled the household of God. It is the dwelling place of of the family of God. It is the gathering place. It is the gathering of the family of God. And then it is also the church, the assembly of the living God. That is, it is his. It's his possession. And then finally in verse 15, he called it the pillar and the buttress or the foundation of the truth. Those were the designations. Those were the titles given to the church, and this letter was written so that Timothy and all that are under his leadership would know how to behave within the church, the assembly, the gathering. Nothing is more important to the essence of the church than its foundation and its exaltation of the truth. That is the pillar that holds it up high and the foundation that makes sure that it never crumbles of the truth. And so Paul, rightly so, is so concerned about these false teachers that were present in Ephesus. He has already addressed these individuals. He has already commended Timothy to deal harshly with these individuals. If you remember, we started this letter back in chapter 1, verse 3, with a warning and a charge 
for certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That is, heterodoctrine. That is, an, another doctrine or other teaching. Not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And then Paul went on to talk about these certain persons swerving from sound doctrine and from love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith have wandered away into vanity, into vain discussion. He dealt with them right off the bat that these teachers, these leaders who were false, who were teaching another doctrine, were to be dealt harshly with. He came back to that and he addressed it again in chapter 4. Right in the middle, really in the heart of the letter, at the first five verses of chapter 4, Paul said, now, in, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That is the false teacher, a liar, a seared conscience, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who know, who believe, and know the truth. And so Paul is emphatic that these individuals are to be dealt with harshly within the church. They are to be separated from the church, isolated from the church, so that the church can remain the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And the truth, in Paul's theology, is the whole of the scriptures and in particular the revelation of the apostolic word which is what we now have as our new testaments matthew was an apostle one of the twelve john mark was the uh, ministry partner of paul and of peter he was john mark who wrote the gospel of mark you read about him in acts that Paul was disgruntled with John Mark. Peter took him, and Mark's gospel is Peter's account of his life with Christ. And so it's the apostolic transfer of information that we have received in the inspired New Testament. Luke was the ministry partner and physician of Paul. John, of course, was the beloved disciple who laid in the bosom of Christ and who loved Christ both as a friend and as his Messiah King. And then the remainder of the letters throughout our New Testament, concluding with the revelation to John on the Isle of Patmos in isolation and exile, all of your New Testaments represent the apostolic revelation. And it is closed. It's closed. It is completed. It is finalized. And if you were hoping that you would be the next apostle and you would add to this revelation, that will not happen. And all those who stand opposed to the apostolic word, as seen in our New Testaments, are to be considered as false teachers, as those who are teaching other doctrines. And that is where we come tonight. We come back full circle now at the conclusion of the letter, and Paul makes one more call for the reality and for an understanding of the reality of the seriousness of doctrine within the church. Tonight we're going to see two characteristics. And I, I had a hard time breaking this up throughout the week to know how to deal with this because of how much is packed into these little verses. 
But we're just going to see two general characteristics and a lot of details underneath of them, but two characteristics of the false teacher that has infiltrated the church at Ephesus and is attempting to corrode and erode the pillar and the ground of the truth. Okay? We'll begin reading with the last phrase of verse 2, and you can follow along. We'll read all the way through verse 10 just for context's sake. But beginning with the last phrase, teach and urge these things, which is the bridge between what we have just finished in relationships in the New Testament and what we are about to read about wealth and money and contentment and the groups of people within the church. So teach and urge these things. That is the things I have just said, and in particular the things that I am about to address. Verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is the means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Particularly, we're going to look at verses 3 through 5 this evening. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, one, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Two, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. And then the production out of that controversy is just envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. That's the fruit. Among people who are depraved in their minds, sin is reigning and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness, finally, is a means of gain. So they are marked by greed. Okay? So we have these two characteristics that mark these false leaders who are infiltrating the church. And... Here's the first. False teachers are ignorant fools. False teachers are ignorant fools. And then secondly, false teachers are troublemakers. Okay? Now, I understand that at face value, as you write your notes or whatever you do to remember what we've talked about, that might sound very crass to say that Paul's point in verses 3 through 5, he has two points. One is that false teachers are ignorant fools. And the other is that false teachers are troublemakers, but that is sugarcoating what is here. I just want you to be aware of that. That is a sugarcoated version of what Paul says. And there are these two definitive statements in verse 4 that outline these characteristics. One, here is the description in verse 4. He is, this is the false teacher, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. 
The J.B. Phillips translation, which is a literal word-for-word translation that takes into account no literary structure, so it just translates the words as they stand. It's very hard to read. You would have a very hard time in English reading it because of the way it's translated. But he translates this, conceited idiot. That was his translation of conceited and puffed up and without understanding. Another translation, also not a common one, but one that gives itself to just translating what is there without literary structure and a little older, translated this, he is a pompous ignoramus. I thought about using that as the uh, characteristic. False teachers are pompous ignoramuses. I don't even know there could be a plural of ignoramuses. Paul is very pointed and very clear that these people who are teaching a different doctrine, and this is... For those of you who have been with us all day, we just studied the beginning of Galatians. This is Paul's M.O. These people are to be called out as puffed up with conceit. They are full of hot air. There's nothing really there. I remember when I was, I don't know, maybe a freshman or a sophomore in high school, some of you look at me now and you think, wow, there's not much to that guy physically. And I, I would have to second that. But when I was a freshman and sophomore, there was even less to me physically. I was probably 6'2 or 3 when I was a freshman. Oh, I was 6'1 when I was a freshman, I believe, and I was 6'2 or 3 when I was a sophomore. And I think my sophomore year I weighed in at a buck 35. So 6'3, buck 35. If you blew hard enough, I would fall over, okay? So we were having pictures one day, and I remember this distinctly. We were having team pictures for a sport. I don't know what it was, soccer, basketball, softball, something. And I was in the picture, and I was so desperately wanting to not be 135 pounds. So I thought to myself, well, it's only reasonable that I do anything physically I can to try to inflate what I look like. So I took in as much air as I possibly could. And I stuck my chest out as far as I could. And let me tell you, absolutely nobody was fooled by what had happened. I was puffed up. I was full of hot air. There was nothing there. In fact, one of the seniors, who I can still remember, I can remember the moment that this happened, he walked past me and he said, this is a pin. And acted like he was popping me as a balloon because of how much I was trying to look like something that I wasn't. These false teachers are puffed up. That is the idea. They're full of hot air. There's nothing really there. And they're conceited about it. They're proud of their nothingness. They have nothing to offer. They are teaching a different doctrine, and they are puffed up with conceit. They are full of pride, nothing of value. And they understand nothing. They are stupid. That's the word Paul uses. That is the term he's using. Idiot is the right term for this. Moron comes from this idea. So Paul calls the false teachers puffed up hot air balloons that are morons. So don't get on me for saying that Paul's theme is that false teachers are ignorant fools. This is his description, and he is deadly serious. And verse 3 into verse 4 tell us why Paul is so harsh and so insensitive when it comes to his description 
of these false teachers. And we need to take account of this. We need to look deeply at this and to think deeply and to be on alert for these characteristics. Okay? Why the harsh words? Why this harsh description in verse 4? Well, because of verse 3. What will earn you the Apostle Paul's designation as puffed up and understanding nothing? Well, if you teach a different doctrine... Say, what do you mean by different doctrine, Paul? Well, he goes on to explain it. The and there is a connective and. It really is a further explanation now that we see. There is a different doctrine, and that different doctrine is further explained as not agreeing with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. You want to earn this title? Step outside of the bounds of what has been revealed as the truth. Step outside the bounds of the teaching and the words, the sound or healthy words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Step outside the bounds of instruction. That's fruit is godliness. You do that within the church, and the Apostle Paul will come down with an iron fist that you are puffed up with conceit, and you understand nothing. You are an ignorant fool. different doctrine is any doctrine that does not match what the New Testament reveals as the completed word of God, the apostolic revelation of truth. False teaching, folks, does not always wear a banner that says false teaching. False teachers do not wear t-shirts that say notice, caution, I have been known to teach false doctrine. It looks right. It smells right. It sounds right at some level. And yet at some place, at some point, false teaching will depart from the sound revelation of the doctrine of the New Testament and the whole of Scripture. The standard is Jesus Christ as revealed by the apostolic word. And you say, why do we say as revealed by the apostolic word. Because in Paul's theology, he clearly articulates that his words are to be taken as the very words of Jesus Christ. Because he did not receive them, he did not come up with them, he did not generate them on his own. He was given them by the Lord Jesus. Therefore, when Paul spoke, when he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, it was as if he spoke directly for the Lord Jesus Christ, not as if he did speak directly for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a couple examples of this. Take a little bit of time to look at the context, but flip back to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Understand that in the context of the writing of the New Testament, the letters were written before the gospel accounts, Okay. Maybe you haven't thought about that, but the letters that we are studying were written before the gospel accounts. So there was no recorded word, written, recorded word of Jesus' teaching. His instruction was being passed down orally. His words were being communicated through the apostolic ministry and through the prophetic word. And so when we come to Colossians chapter 3 and we're dealing with the body life, we are talking about the body life devoid of the first four books of your New Testament. Okay? Take that as your context and go to verse 16. Let the word of Christ, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ, what was the word of Christ? It was the revelation of his desire, of his gospel, and of his will through the apostolic ministry. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, just before, in your pages there, just before 1 Timothy, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul here speaks of the word of the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, as being generated through the ministry of the local church. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. In other words, Paul says, the word of the Lord has so encompassed you, the gospel has so gripped your lives, that you are speaking the word of the Lord. And you are living the word of the Lord. You are living out the gospel. You are speaking and communicating the gospel, the word of the Lord. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. We're making our way back to 1 Timothy. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul asked the church at Thessalonica to pray for his ministry. And he says in verse 1, Finally, brothers, pray for us, that is his team, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. Pray for us that the word of the Lord, that is the words of Jesus, would speed ahead and be honored as they were at the church at Thessalonica. And then finally we look at 1 Peter. That's several pages over. I can go there if you want to stay put. 1 Peter chapter 2. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, verse 1 says, and like newborn infants or newborn babes, verse 2, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The pure milk of the word, the spiritual milk, the word of Christ. This is to be the mark of the church. And it is this defining mark of the church that the false teachers were standing opposed to. This is where they were contrasted. They stood opposed, teaching a different doctrine that did not agree with the words of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Not only that, the standard was not only the message of Jesus Christ, the standard was also the outcome of the teaching. What was the promotion of the instruction that was coming to the church at Ephesus? Well, Paul here says that the teaching did not accord, it did not match with godliness. They were attempting to drive a circular peg through a square cavity, right? It didn't go in. It didn't match. It doesn't work. This was apples and oranges. These did not go together. They were not only avoiding or opposing the teachings and the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also the teaching that accords with godliness. So their fruit of the fruit of their teaching was the opposite of godliness, which is worldliness, humanness, humanism. 
It is an idea that is generated humanly. It is a concept or a doctrine or a mindset that has human origin and has human fruit. Not godly origin, not godly source, and certainly not godly fruit. So what will gain you this title of pompous ignoramus is if you are a teacher within the church who has departed from the sound words and are teaching a different gospel. Now this should not be a surprise to us, folks. I I know that with the 50 of us or whatever it is, the 45, 50 of us here tonight, it's hard to believe that there are going to be people who get up or who don't even get up, but who sit in a small group and somehow depart from the sound words of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of our New Testaments. And I'm sure at Ephesus it was a shock to the system in this early church that false teaching had infiltrated so much that the Apostle Paul himself had now written a letter to Timothy. He had sent Timothy to deal with this, and now he had written a letter calling for change. It should not have been a surprise. You'll remember in Acts chapter 20, Paul was moving on towards Jerusalem, which he assumed would be his death. And he moves, or towards Rome, sorry, not Jerusalem, towards Rome, which he assumed would be his death. He comes down by way of the sea, and he meets with the Ephesian elders. So he meets with the leaders of this church in Acts chapter 20. Now listen to what Paul says. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Every single member of the flock, pay attention to them. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Verse 29. I know, Paul was confident, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, that is, this group of elders, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Pay close attention. Because Paul was aware that after his departure, fierce wolves would come in, not sparing the flock, and it happened. It happened. It even happened within the leadership, within the teachers of the local church. And now chapter 6 of verse Timothy, he is calling for Timothy to deal harshly and strongly with these individuals. First character heading, false teachers are ignorant fools. Secondly, false teachers make trouble. They are troublemakers. Their wake is not one of unity. Their wake is not one of purity. Their wake is one of destruction. Look at the second part of verse 4. He... That is the designation of this unnamed false teacher. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Now you remember that when we talked about this before, we looked at the words, the genealogies, and the myths that these men were promoting. The secret knowledge, 
a higher spiritual understanding of the Old Testament. Secret meanings from the genealogies. Arguments were plentiful. And these false teachers were marked out in their character as having an unhealthy craving, a craving, unattainable desire, insatiable desire for controversy and for fighting about words. They're troublemakers. They love a good controversy. They love to argue with the body of Christ about words, about genealogies, about myths. You folks have not had the experience, many of you, that we have had having been in the seminary lifestyle for any amount of time. But this is a particular temptation of a seminary environment. This is really what has earned seminaries the title of cemeteries. is because this can become prevalent. This love, this craving for a good discussion about theory, a good argument about non-essentials, a good controversy about words can permeate and will permeate the life and the ministry of these false teachers. And if it's not rooted, if it's not rooted out and dealt with by God's grace and with the renewal of the truth, it will lead to destruction. All of the love of fighting in these false teachers only leads to more sinful behavior. Okay? What's the fruit of false teaching? It's only sin. So sinful departure from the pure and sound words of doctrine only leads to now more sin in the lives of all who partake. And this list is just a grocery list of despicable sins for the church of Jesus Christ to be labeled with. Envy, resentment of another's gifts or possessions. Envy, dissension, the spirit of competition and contention within the body. Slander, the verbal abuse of the rival party. Right? The lying and the tearing down of those who don't agree evil suspicions, the opposite of trust in the relationships within the church. These false teachers generated a suspicion within the church of others. And the fruit of all of that was constant friction. Well, do you think? Constant friction. This was the sad reality of these false teachers, and it was the sad reality of what was becoming the church at Ephesus, a place of envy, a harbor for dissension, for slander, for evil suspicions, that is thinking evil about someone for no particular reason other than that you're suspicious in and of yourself of this person, and constant friction, not the peaceful, loving, unified doctrinally pure church that Christ suffered and died to secure. Your New Testament tells you that Christ died to present a spotless bride, right? His desire was to rescue people from sin, to save them for good works, to save them for purity. False teaching a departure from his words, a departure from sound doctrine, leads to the opposite of what Christ intends for his church. And we, most of us, have been at some point or another involved in a church that has seen these characteristics at its core. 
This is the worldly fruit, the godless fruit of those who have begun teaching what does not accord with godliness. So, these people who lead in this mockery of Christ's church and who fall prey to its vices are further defined in verse 5. So, as if Paul hasn't said enough, he goes on in verse 5 to talk about the people who are involved with these false teachers. They are depraved in mind and they are deprived of the truth. Depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Now, one of those words you probably are very familiar with, deprived of the truth. My parents used to tease us as children. We would cry because we weren't going to get a second scoop of ice cream, and they would say, oh, you're so deprived. I grew up knowing that the word deprived meant that I wasn't deprived. I was spoiled, and I had more than I could ever want. But deprived is the total lack of some necessity, and in this case, they are deprived of the truth. The second concept, which is really listed first, depraved in mind is probably less familiar, but you may be familiar with the concept of depravity. And even the world uses the word depravity, wickedness, sinfulness. And in Paul's theology, and we're going to study this in the future, but in in Paul's theology and in the scriptures understanding of the human condition, we are totally depraved. We are utterly depraved. We are filthy to the core. We are tainted by sin at every single level. The depravity that is particularly seen in these false teachers and those who associate with them is the depravity of the mind. Okay? The depravity of the mind is the opposite of the renewed mind of Romans 12, 1 and 2. They are not renewing their mind. They are not experiencing the renewal of the inner man. In fact, their mind is depraved. It is devoid of spiritual life. It is full of sin. And because of that, and because of their deprivation from truth, not only are they left with sinful minds, but they have no knowledge of the truth, Paul says, The result is this constant friction among the people. False teachers are ignorant fools and they are troublemakers. And as troublemakers, they are defined with one final fruit, which is the bridge to the remainder of this chapter. Paul says that in their deprivation from the truth and in the depravity of their minds, they have one common characteristic. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Greed. Greed marks these false teachers. It marks those who follow after them, imagining their fantasy is that godliness externally will result in their riches and in their gain. This is their imagination. This is the constant thought of a depraved mind that is deprived of the truth. That somehow I will improve my temporal life circumstance because I'm associated with what I call, quote-unquote, godliness. We have known this in church history. We have seen it. We know it even today. Bribery in the early church for church offices, the Middle Ages, was so common. The sale of indulgences, where the church would collect money, you could buy 
a couple less years for Uncle Pete in purgatory by just giving a couple more dollars. Despicable acts of trying to use the gospel, use the word of God, use the church as a means of gain. Cults charge fees and tuitions to be a part of their false church. Many televangelists are the most living illustration of this and most familiar to us. You've all come in contact with a love offering that was suspect from the beginning. Seed gifts, that if you'll give a seed gift of $1,000, I will guarantee that if it's given with the right amount of faith, you're going to see double on that return. Seed gifts, love offerings, prayer hankies that will cost you just 20 bucks. You name it, it's being done. I remember the last and most horrific one that I saw on the Internet. It was a televangelist who raised millions of dollars to buy a private jet. Private jet, and he took some passage out of the Old Testament out of context and communicated to the people who sadly were depraved in their minds and deprived of the truth. And he deceived them into thinking that this personal jet, which some Hollywood person would use, this Lear jet for his own use, was for the sake of taking the gospel to the world. It was anything but that. He was found out to be a fraud, which is always remarkable to me that that makes news. Are you kidding? This guy is living on the backs of those who are sitting in front of TBN at 2 in the morning. I think he's a fraud. Yet this is the description of the false teacher. What is the the unifying theme? They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. And Paul mentions this throughout his letters, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, here in the pastorals, that the false teacher is one who is in it for his own stomach. So in conclusion, our friend John Stott, who is a brother of mine who sits on my shelf and helps me each week, gives these three questions. You want to ask three questions about a teacher to distinguish. You may have questions. Is this guy accurate? Is this guy a true teacher of the Word of God, or is he a false teacher? Well, maybe these will help just from these four verses, three verses. Is the teaching in agreement with the New Testament? Be a Berean. Acts 17, be a Berean. The Berean church did not question a false teacher. They questioned the Apostle Paul and took his word back to the Scriptures to see if what he said was in fact true. Is the teaching in agreement with the New Testament? Secondly, John Stott says, does the teaching promote true unity or needless division? What is the result? Is it unity around the truth? Is it true biblical unity founded on the person of Christ? Or is it needless division? And then thirdly, he mentions this. Does the teaching promote or illustrate godliness with contentment or covetousness with greed? Does the teaching promote or illustrate godliness with contentment or covetousness with greed? Say, this teacher is a questionable teacher. What does he teach in accordance with the apostolic word? Is it agreeing with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness? 
Does the teaching promote the biblical concept of unity, not a superficial unity that leaves doctrine out? But the New Testament concept of unity that rallies around the gospel, the clear gospel of Jesus Christ? And finally, does the teaching promote or illustrate godliness with contentment? Is the fruit of the one teaching a life that is content both with and without because of the godliness that they have in Christ? Or is an illustration of covetousness and greed. Money, 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 possessions, possessions, possessions. Three questions to help differentiate between true and false teachers. Now, what's the big picture? What's the point? I can't say this strongly enough, folks. I can't think it strongly enough. We need to meditate on this. Doctrine is of the most crucial importance to the church. It is so popular today to, to downplay doctrine. That is foreign to the New Testament. Doctrine is everything. The church is all about what it believes. There's nothing more important than the instruction that comes to the people of God for the equipping to the ministry by the teachers of the church. Doctrine is crucial and it is the most crucial element for the church fulfilling its divine directives. What and how will the church ever fulfill its commission to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? How can that be accomplished if the gospel is unclear, if the doctrine is outside of the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and does not agree with godliness? impossibility secondly false teachers are prevalent and they are dangerous my dad and I remember one time we were in a hotel room we were at a conference together pastor's conference I was a young guy I think I was in college and we were laying on the bed getting ready to go to bed and we had the TV on and we turned on whatever the local station was Christian station and uh, one particular televangelist uh, who will go, re- remain unnamed but his uh, last name is Hin um, was on the television and we were watching it he was preaching from Ezekiel which is always great it's like oh this is going to be juicy he's in Ezekiel this is going to be good so my dad and I we started to watch this and we were we were sadly to say enjoying a good laugh at what was happening and then I remember my dad distinctly it was as if all of a sudden I had an awareness that we were laughing at this. He had an awareness that we were laughing at this. I had an awareness that he's the dad and I'm the son. And he had an awareness that he's the dad and he's and I'm the son. And the TV went black. And he said, we have no business, no business laughing at that. It's not funny. He's right. It was not funny. Because false teaching is not only prevalent, it is it is of the utmost danger to the precious fold that Jesus died to purchase. Thirdly, false teachers are identifiable. Okay? Another common fallacy today is, hey, it's a good good guy, he's got a good intent. Who am I to judge? Who am I to evaluate the teaching? Who am I to sit in judgment? 
of what is being said? Well, that's the right question. You're nobody to sit in judgment of what is being said. But in God's gracious kindness to you, he has given you his perfect revelation that does sit in judgment over what is being said. And he has called you to evaluate and to identify those who associate with the truth and those who depart from it. You are called upon and you are enabled and empowered to discern true teachers from the false teachers. We cannot cop out because of the motives that we think we know about in the person who is instructing. It must accord with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Fourthly, in conclusion, Grace Church must not become a witch hunt for false teachers, but it must always strive and be willing to divide over doctrine for the doctrinal clarity of the gospel. God's people are not to be walking around with a secret New Testament that they hold in their chest pocket, asking people hard questions so that they can whip out their Bibles and slap them a couple times across the face with their little pocket New Testament. That is why we have earned the title Bible Thumpers, okay? Because we thump on the Bible, and we thump with the Bible often. The New Testament's revelation of the church is anything but a bunch of Bible thumpers. It is, though, it is a group of people who worship the God who is revealed and who love and treasure his word and are marked by mercy and compassion for those who are outside of the truth and who graciously and persistently bring the truth to bear on the lives of those that they come in contact with. We must stand firm against false teaching. We must be on the alert for false teaching. You must be on the alert for false teaching. We must be constant and persistent in our desire for doctrinal clarity and consistency within the local church. Why? Why? Well, because the Word of God is the final and perfect revelation of our Christ and of the God who created us, who sent him to die for our sins. So we want the world to know, we want the church to know, that we as the people of God hold the word of God, the revelation of God, the living and present word of God, as sufficient and final in all authority for all facets of life and for all issues of doctrine and faith. That's the foundation of why we exist. That's why Grace Church is here. To uphold the Word of God and the God who is revealed in His Word. Right? And to worship Him. To show Him as valuable to the world around us. To love Him infinitely. And to obey Him consistently. That we might reflect the glories of the Gospel. The marvelous revelation that's found in His Word. False teachers, they are sad individuals, they are troublemakers, and they are those who are ignorant in their pride and arrogance. We need to be on the watch, not to be them, first checking our own hearts, and not to allow ourselves or those that we are in fellowship with to come under the indoctrination of these false teachers.